From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. There are so many theories about why young adults are leaving the Catholic Church today. Maybe our parishes aren't welcoming enough. Or maybe they're watering down the faith. Maybe young people are being asked to do too much to be part of the community. Or maybe they're not being asked to do enough. Maybe they're angry at the church's positions on certain social issues. Or maybe they just drift away because they don't find anything relevant at church. It can be challenging to offer grand, sweeping theories about young adults and the church because we're talking about millions of people. Young adults aren't a monolith. But there is some good quantitative and qualitative data we can work with. And my guest today is uniquely equipped to offer some compelling arguments. Ellen Koenig is the executive director of Commonweal Magazine, which is the venerable Catholic Journal of Opinion that celebrates its 100th birthday next year. Ellen is an incredibly insightful writer with experience in pastoral ministry, making her an astute observer of the reasons her fellow young adults slip out the church door. She also took over her role at Commonweal after working as head writer at the Springtide Research Institute, which does some of the best statistical work on young people and the church you can find anywhere. Ellen combined her wealth of experience and observational skill into a talk she gave this past April at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. I watched her talk on YouTube and I immediately knew she'd be a great conversation partner to go even deeper into these topics. So Ellen and I recently had a wide-ranging conversation on why church membership is a bad metric for measuring youth involvement in faith, and why the problem of polarization might not be as crucial to think about and address as the problem of alienation. We also talked about how Commonweal is trying to reach a new generation of readers. It was a fascinating conversation, and I'll be sure to link to Ellen's original talk in Chicago in the show notes. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Ellen Koenig, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me this morning. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because you gave a talk relatively recently in Chicago about young people in the church, and I really liked it. And it made me think about young people in the church, which is a topic I think a lot about. It made me think about it differently, which is rare, I think, for consuming some of this stuff. A lot of the time, it's kind of some of the same old arguments you hear, and especially as like a fellow millennial in the church. If I go and do anything on any topic, uh, give a talk or something, people come up and say, so my kid or grandkid is not in the church. Why are you still in it? What can I do? So that yeah. always comes up. So that's a question we get asked a lot as millennial Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of go through some of that. And we'll obviously, we'll link to the talk. People can watch it on YouTube. So they'll hear that from you. But I want to kind of get into some of those those topics. And one thing I think is interesting about what you're bringing to the table mm-hmm. is as like a writer you're like a writer kind of qualitative English majory type, but also <laughs> but also worked for a sociological research organization yeah. for a number of years. And so you bring yeah. a lot of that stuff together. So anyway, um, I want to maybe we can start by for you when you were sitting down to like write mm-hmm. a talk about like all kinds of different ways that young people interact with or don't interact with the church or are mm-hmm. leaving um, and how they're leaving. 
what are some for you, like some of those things as you were discerning, like where to go, the, those like kind of start with some of the headlines maybe that for you kind yeah. of jumped out and you want to make sure you include right at the top. Yeah. Um, well, first, I'm really glad that I managed to surprise you or make you think things that you haven't heard before, because sometimes it's hard to tell what's obvious and what's not obvious. And actually, I started this lecture thinking about what I believe is obvious, but also what I think might feel obvious to a lot of people, but though they haven't yet managed to articulate or substantiate some of the things that they might be seeing in their parish or in their lives or like grandparents noticing it about their grandchildren. So some of the headline things that I started with in this lecture, which I gave for the Common Ground Initiative at CTU, um, they w were like, item one, like young people don't trust institutions. And there's sort of a casual way of mentioning this, but I'm trying to like demonstrate that they don't trust institutions and there's reasons for it. Like we can understand this. We can even have empathy for it. It's not just like a sort of crossed arms, like tapping their foot, waiting to be convinced type of, um, you know, like teenage angsty skepticism. It's a very reasonable and maybe even healthy thing for young people to feel today toward many, many institutions. Um, so young people don't trust institutions. Obviously, that's an, a, a grossly generalized, generalized idea. Um, there are pockets that do. There are pockets that don't. But on the whole, I'd say, you know, Gen Z and younger, probably even parts of our generation, parts of the millennials, um, are a little bit reticent about institutions and institutional authority in particular. The idea that authority would be a given because a person comes from a certain institution. Like the difference I think is easily exemplified that my, my dad who um, went to seminary, you know, he's 75. He went to seminary. He like did, he was like a good Catholic guy who was like, I will, I don't think I'm called to the priesthood, but I better go to seminary for a couple of years to make sure. Um, like he would go to his priest with any concern he might have in family life, in discerning his own vocation in like studies or, you know, bullies or like naturally he would think I could go to the parish priest about this or to the, the rector of my school for this. And my niece who's 16 and also went, was, you know, is raised Catholic and has been educated in Catholic schools. Like that would never occur to her that this would be an authority in her life who could weigh on, weigh in meaningfully. Um, and we have different, we have generationally different folks we go to. So anyway, this is just like, it, it, it's maybe obvious, maybe people have felt that reality, you know, in their bones before, but it's sociologically true in the data. And it's also sort of understandable if you start to peel back the layers about how many institutions have lost trust, um, have, have failed to earn it from young people. Um, but that's, that's sort of, sort of one headline that I think maybe is obvious, but it's helpful to spell out. Um, others that, again, sort of my starting point as I was thinking about this, um, were the idea that, you know, we know disaffiliation or unaffiliation rates are really high. This is like every headline. Um, but the headlines are meant to get us to click. I mean, they're just like, they're meant to be a little bit dramatic and make us fret, um, which I am not prone or interested in doing. Fretting is just doesn't feel especially productive. Um, so the second headline sort of 
is this idea that disaffiliation and unaffiliation are happening um, and that it's really bad. <laughs> um, those are, I don't know, I, I know that I'm the, the guest here, but I'd be really interested, like, what, it, what do you hear about this, Mike? Like, what is the, what's the, what's the narrative around disaffiliation and unaffiliation? Because I feel like once we get it on the table, we can figure out why that's not holding up, why, why it's failing to move us in a direction that helps us do something about what we're fretting about. Yeah. So no, that's certainly like for those of us on the inside, that's the thing, right? It's like people, we're on the inside and there are people who could be on the inside or maybe were, but are yeah. leaving or then saying, no, I'm not. And like, which again, it's like, that takes another step from saying that you still are affiliated, but not really being involved. Um, yeah. So like, it's like coming from the Jesuit perspective, it's interesting running you know, 80 some odd high schools, 27 colleges and universities in the US and Canada often like are places where like faith seems alive, though yeah. I would say at a lot of our universities, especially would have like kind of people who grew up Catholic who maybe aren't as sure anymore. And so like bending over backwards to make sure those people are, are welcome to find a place. And we certainly meet people who say like, ah, I'm, I'm not all that connected. Maybe I'm not at mass every week. I'm not like, I haven't found a parish that connects with me, but like the Jesuits, I like the Jesuits. And so like, I'm following kind of what you're doing or I'm reading or praying that way or staying connected. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think as you show, it's like, it's, it's not a binary thing or a black and white thing that we can think of someone's in or out. Totally. Um, that's, that's actually the most interesting thing to me. And I, um, I think anybody who is reading the headlines has a really binary view of what's going on and anybody who's on the ground kind of paying attention or interacting with young people, especially in spaces of religious and spiritual question asking, are seeing something so much more nuanced and really um, exciting. Like maybe exciting would be a word I'd use to describe it. Um, because if we can give up the sort of uh, grasping hold on membership alone as like the sort of primary qualifier for a young person's, you know, faith life or salvation or whatever it is that young people that we're, we're anxious about young people's status about. If we can give up that, that tight grip, I think we can see that there's a lot of flourishing happening in young people's religious and spiritual lives. It just doesn't look exactly how we might expect it to. And so it doesn't, it doesn't fit the containers we've created to uh, define their spiritual and religious lives. And this is one of the most fascinating things to me. And this data comes out of Springtide, where I was the head writer for um, about four years. Um, and we, one of the things that we noticed, we starting to, you know, unpack this data, and we realized that there were all of these young people who told us they were religiously affiliated. So they, they identified themselves as part of a religious group. Like I am Roman Catholic. I am Presbyterian. I am Muslim. And only some of those young people also did the things that we expect correspond to a religious identity, like go to service every week or um, participate in community life or believe in the things that that faith teaches. So like mm. we started to piece together, like, what does it mean in a very, you know, almost a kind of flat definition of religion? If somebody's religious, we'd expect them to have an identity, a community, a set of practices and a set of beliefs. And what if they don't all correspond? Are they still religious? Well, if they say they are, then they must be. So let's examine and take seriously what is this new religious thing that they're doing? Like, instead of expecting that it isn't right and it's, you know, bad, 
let's find out what it is because they're flourishing. Young people who say that they're religious or spiritual flourish at higher rates than those who say they're not. So something is going right and we can be curious about it instead of sort of doubtful or suspicious of it at the very first glance. Do you have a sense of some examples of ways that that's being lived out now? So for me, like growing up as a you know a millennial high schooler, we had a strong parish, strong youth group. So like I'm an altar server, I'm going to youth group stuff. I'm becoming a leader in the youth group. Um, we're going to mass. Like I was like you know hit fit the bill for like kind of classic young person participation the way we would think of it like long ago, right? And I have stayed consistent through my entire life. So like that was there. But so how is it looking? Could we? What do you know about like some maybe some examples uh, from what you've seen for if it's not lining up that way and it's and they're doing religion a little differently, quite differently? Um, yeah. Well, so what what are some examples of that? I think some of the well, some of the examples of this definitely come from being in an increasingly uh, uh, interconnected world. So we have access to a lot of different religious and spiritual uh, questions and expressions, and very naturally. Um, when we were sort of confined because we didn't have the internet, but maybe also because, you know, the parishes were were cultural communities first and foremost. Um, so when we started to realize there were different expressions, even within Catholicism, those expressions are really beautiful and maybe compelling and maybe we want to participate in those. But now take that to an even greater scale, which is that we have... Um, heard from, you know, religious authorities that, you know, what we're doing is right and what everybody else is doing is wrong. But then young people today have the chance to actually witness the expression, the faith expressions of their, of their peers that may be distinct and see that they are flourishing or happy or um, have an inner peace. And so they get naturally curious about those things. And so um, one of the, the concepts that Springtide, um, has used to explain this is called um, unbundled religion. And it is this, um, it's not exactly like we might have heard in the 90s, this cafeteria Catholic thing, picking and choosing, this fits, this doesn't, or I believe this, I don't believe that. It's different than that because it's very, um, uh, it's very dedicated to what's true and whole and real. Like it's a, there's a genuine seeking. It's not about what's necessarily comfortable, but where can I be my whole self? And for example, the, you know, LGBTQ plus community, they're not finding, if they, they believe in, you know, an, a young person in this community might believe in Christ, but not feel that they actually can attend the parrot, their local parish because um, of the rhetoric they hear from the homily, then they might believe and identify as a Catholic, but head to um, a non-denominational church on Saturday nights to get like, this fill of the gospel that they're still seeking. Um, they might meditate on, you know, in the mornings or participate in um, like, you know, different kinds of spiritual exercises. And none of that feels in tension with each other because the goal is a kind of personal wholeness rather than wholeness of participation in a in a category outside themselves. Like I'm not a whole Catholic by this standard. I'm a whole person by this, by my standard. Um, those are sort of vague examples, but, um, but I think that it's probably what um, a lot of people do naturally, but young people just do it sort of on its face. They do it really, uh, without any shame. Um, I don't know any like 
you know, my parents are boomers. I think they do it too. I think they kind of, they pick and choose. They're like, oh, like I'm kind of into the Stoics. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not, that's not Catholic, <laughs> you know, but they're still Catholic. Like, so we, or, or people who read like, um, chicken soup for the soul. Like, do you know what I mean? There's, there's always been this tendency to find a little nourishment outside the confines of our natural and the institutions with which we most closely identify. Um, but it doesn't usually interrupt our sense of membership with those institutions. When I think about folks kind of doing that or drifting or disaffiliating or just not being part of it anymore, slipping out the back door, for me, that's like, okay, maybe maybe in college, they you know take a philosophy class and their faith is challenged for the first time, uh, maybe as later in life. But I, you quote some stats that are interesting and then even talked about your own experience in that talk at like that a lot of the time, like the departure is starting at age like 13. Like when kids see, like when they're showing up because they have to, but they're at our programs there they are there because their parents are bringing them but even if and when they're looking back later like eh, it was around the time i was 13 that i was like no this isn't for me um yeah could you talk a little bit about your own experience with that and and what you've what springtide or what you've learned about the kind of that that age what what is what about that age is um so crucial yeah i am um this is the the eight, the number 13 comes from a study that St. Mary's Press and Cara did jointly in 2018 called Going, Going, Gone. Um, and they were looking at specifically interviewing uh, and collecting survey data from lapsed Catholics, like former Catholics who were young people. So young people who were like, yes, I was Catholic and no, I'm not anymore. Not even foot in the door. Um, and this is a really interesting, like I would point to that text and they had a lot of corresponding materials and interviews and videos that kind of came out along with it. Um, I would point to that for a really interesting like kind of first iteration of what an unbundled relationship to Catholicism in particular looks like where they're still like, yeah, I'm actually still into the saints or the justice or the, you know, the, the smells and bowels, but it, the whole doesn't work for me right now. Um, but 13 was this number that um, through data and interviews, they determined that um, when young people looked back, they could identify um, a moment of rift around 13. And that sounds like a, such a shocking number. But also, I, I feel like if you go back into your 13-year-old self <laughs> in your own memory, you are coming into a sense of identity. You're desperate to belong. You're trying to figure out who you are and what you'll be. And you're beginning to shed some of the, the feeling of adolescence and childhood. And it's a natural place for faith to either step up into a kind of serious place in a young person's life or for it to get increasingly irrelevant. Um, and I don't think that it, it's shed at 13, but I think that the cracks start at 13. Um, and I can remember this because I was 13 when I was, you know, meant to be confirmed. And I tell the story in this lecture that I, you know, I, I was insistent that I not be because I thought this is too serious for a 13 year old to make a lifelong decision. Like this is, you know, this is marriage. <laughs> like, um, and I think the only rare thing about my example is that I was that I was willing to say it out loud. But I think it's the felt experience, maybe without language, of a lot of other 13-year-olds who are like, I don't know about this, but I'm supposed to do it because my mom says. Or maybe they didn't feel they had sufficient agency to actually say to their parents, eh, eh, not now, not, not yet. 
but I did say that to my mom and she was like okay cool like yeah I agree this is serious and you should take your time with it so it's not like you can't get confirmed later so the, the like the end of the story which I didn't give in this lecture just I don't know cliffhanger status um <laughs> was that I did get confirmed and at that age like with my peers and I did because I was in some sort of like program for for confirmation like a retreat or a lecture or something like that hosted by my church and I sort of offered a series of problems that I had with the church. And number one on the list was actually like the Inquisition. <laughs> I just learned about the Inquisition. I was like, that's really messed up. Like, are we, have we solved that? Like, did we, have we sufficiently repented? Um, and I, I was just like, dang, this is shocking. And this is a church I'm supposed to be like really comfortable with. Like, that's really messed up that they could make such a grave error, like murdering lots of people. Um, seems like a big problem. And so I said this to some like small group leader and, you know, was expecting her to sort of like have an answer for me, I guess, because I was 13. So I really thought there were actual answers to questions. Um, and this, this is the reason I'm in the church. Truly the reason that I'm in the church is that she said, yeah, there are a lot of problems. And if you stick around, they'll be yours to solve. You can be the church that changes these things. You can be the church of the future. These can be, this can be the work of your generation. And unwittingly, that's how I end this lecture too. That this, the, these are the problems we, we roll our sleeves up and handle because we've stuck around and that's lucky for us because so many other people were not encouraged to stay and make this their responsibility. Instead, they were given no responsibility and also no invitation to stay. Um, and that's, and I think that those invitations, those relationships, that sense of charge to belong, um, that, ha that obviously happens at 13, 14, 15. Um, I don't know, but, but I would be curious if that number makes any sense to you in your own, you know, you're, you're like signing up and you're an acolyte and you're an ultra server. Like, were you, was there also like an internal relationship to those things at 13 for you? Oh yeah. Well, I think for, for me, it was always like the, uh, this youth minister, right, who came in, who like multiple piercings in his face and long hair and was Jesuit educated and uh, was cool and somehow made youth group cool. And but also like you would come with those questions. Right. And like when you were telling that story, I just remember like coming with big philosophical questions in like early high school around 14, I guess. And then asking and then like he was taking me seriously. And there's a few of us who would come and he would like we would get into them and he would tell me stuff I could read and would engage them and yeah, not like brush anything away or was just ready when I was searching for meaning and, and, uh, and like why this mattered, he was ready to talk about it and to show like, no, and it does matter. And we can talk about these things, but we're also going to be like, you know, going to a anti sweatshop vigil in New York city as a youth group trip. We're going to be like serving at the local soup kitchen. We're, we're going to be doing like some work on, scripture and sacramental tradition and like we're going to be involved in the liturgy and like so there was all this it was this integrated whole in which i found my people and meeting and it was like that and so when i had those questions they were ready to meet me there there was um, a, like an actual space to express them right right i remember and it wasn't no defensiveness right there's like and that's yes. what you described like there's no like a posture of of welcome of uh affirmate and then also the way you talked about like being then challenged like okay so what do you, what will you do then we're calling you not to like eliminate 
any obstacles or make it easier for you. But no, this is going to be hard. What are you going to do? What can you offer? Yeah. Um, which also felt to me as like yeah, that was we were getting a lot of leadership responsibility even as teenagers. Like, okay, so you got to step up. We're calling you to something more. And I think a lot of times we want to like make things easier for people, but like, no, they like to be called to big things. They feel like they're important. Have important yeah, they want to feel like they're, they're needed here. Like they have a responsibility in this space. The, the opposite happened, um, with like a high school religion teacher where I was asking a series of questions and it was like, well, because that's what's taught. Well, because that's what's taught, like was the re resounding response. And I, I managed to ask the same question. I was like, I never got resolution on this question. So like years later, I asked a different mentor and I was like, Hey, this is like not a problem for me, but I'm so curious and no one's ever answered it for me. And he was like, super cool question. Like, let's dive in. And that was that response to the, the ability to manage a young person's skepticism with welcome and hospitality, I think is like the gift we can give this generation. Yeah. And so one thing I think you, you bring up kind of within this context about like the church we are and how defensive we're being or not, or how welcoming or how ready we are to, to meet people and to dive in. Um, you talk a lot about kind of polarization and then versus alienation. You put those things together, which I think was really uh, kind of well done because there's so much talk about polarization, right? Like polarization in the church, like we're, we're though those of us who are here, who are showing up, we have very different opinions from folks on the other side of the church or people on the internet. Like there's a lot of debate within this community. You know, I think I've heard Ronald Rollheiser describe it like a billion person group outing, like you're going to have like different opinions about like what time lunch, what time lunch is. But like so and that like ends up um, becoming such a focus like, oh, we don't have we're losing this communion between people on different sides of big debates. Um, but then you say, well, we're showing up, right? And we're lucky to be showing up still. But like when you talk just about polar intra church polarization, you're losing this alienation of people who are of goodwill who are who are leaving. Um, so, yeah, talk about for you, like how those those things fit together uh, and how they're different. Yeah, I um, I'll say first that I, I I might be skirting over polarization and maybe it's seriousness, but that's in part because I think it's well-worn territory and there's there a lot has been said on it and maybe nothing I can add to except to say that polarization is a dramatic reality in our church, but not one that I think is new. I think our experience of it is dramatized by the fact that we have more speakerphones to kind of hyper broadcast some of the what would otherwise be small scale or parish level attentions are perceived as much, much bigger. And um, like they're connected to movements instead of just like individual expressions or individual agreement disagreements. Um, you know, if this were a matter of me and the guy down the pew, like it, it wouldn't feel explosive or like dramatic or in need of serious investigation by tons of scholars. So it's, it's sort of our point in history that makes us so attuned to it that I think it almost gets bigger because we're magnifying it with our attention. I don't know that it's actually big. So that's sort of my, my sense of polarization. On the other hand, I want to take seriously that um, the, the ends of these polls the the most important things that they disagree with each other about are what's at stake for the humanity or the imago day of different communities of people. And that can't be I, like I I don't want to gloss over and be like 
we have more in common than not. I do think we have more in common than not. But I think when it comes to um, uh, concern for the humanity of women, of people of color, of the LGBTQ plus community, those are things that like disagreement alone cannot be kind of friendly glossed over. Those are things we need to keep butting heads about um, because it's not okay to kind of deny the humanity or even the image of God in various communities, which happens at the extremes of one end. And I don't think is actually the case. It's like a kind of felt or belief um, or true belief for a lot of other folks. So that's all to say, um, I do think the conversation around polarization tends to overshadow what I would hope could get more attention, which is the, the problem of alienation. Um, this is, uh, by all kinds of metrics, there was a maybe three or four years ago, so before COVID, um, a health insurance organization conducted a huge survey and determined that um, this was the youngest, the loneliest generation on record. So um, loneliness as an epidemic uh, was the, was the narrative and the headline before COVID hit. And the Surgeon General is talking about loneliness still and isolation and alienation. And we have this kind of hyper and interconnected world. I'm not going to blame social media. I think that's a cop out. I think social media does lots of good and also is a tool we're still learning to use. And so like fire, you know, we have to get burned a few times before we figure it out. Um, but it, like we, we have not yet figured out how to address this kind of existential and society-wide loneliness that is plaguing in particular our young people in Western culture. So when we focus on polarization in the church, we leave out the fact that there are this, there's this massive demographic of people who could and would and should belong and have meaning and have purpose and have community in the church, that the church can offer these things. It is an antidote to loneliness. It is the body of Christ, and we are all connected. And instead, by focusing on these um, intra-church matters, which need some attention by all means, we lose sight of the fact that these young people and people of all generation, dis disaffiliation is happening across every demographic and every age, um, that we're losing them. They're slipping out the back door. They're not making a peep about their departure. And we, and we have a role to minister to that group too, that's being completely lost. Um, or then they're being blamed for leaving, like they're lazy or they like, they, they just don't want to get up on Sunday mornings was like the like resounding version of it in my youth was like the people who didn't participate were lazy and uninterested and they just wanted to live like, you know, comfortable lives, but the gospel was trying to make the uncom them uncomfortable. And I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like that was it. I feel like they could have been encouraged to stay if only they were given something to hold on to here. Um, so I just think that's a real missed opportunity for the church that I hope can become an opportunity for us. Like if we can focus on that a bit more. That reminds me of one of your lines from 
from the talk to one of your like bullet points when people of goodwill leave the church it must be received as a witness which right for me again the opposite of defensiveness as we talked mm-hmm. about before and there's a perspective shift is are we blaming them are we saying us oh, it's youth soccer soccer is the religion and they don't care about the church anymore but then people of goodwill leave received as a witness um so yeah what why, why did you want to emphasize that point because I know so many holy people who are not in the church. That's the reason is because I can't, um, like I can't forget them and I would hate to. And it's not because I actually feel the need to evangelize them. Um, in some cases I would not encourage them to come back because I know firsthand the wounds that have been caused, um, in particular by religious leaders or, um, religious experiences within the institutional church. Um, it, it, there are too many people for whom religion is too difficult to walk through the doors right now. And that the church would find itself in a position of being not just failing to welcome, but actually harming people is such an indictment and one that I think we need to take seriously rather than try to over-explain, um, I think we should just receive it. And imagine what a church that stops defending itself against its accusers could look like and be, you know, a, a church that sets down its, you know, its guardrails in some sense that it opens its doors and sort of receives whatever these accusations are, because some of them may not be true, but plenty of them will be. Um, and I think we would we would be better we would be a better church to hear those things and receive them. There are so I mean we talk about the church in this monolithic way, but we know of course that lived reality is so different in so many places. And like even the prescriptions for how do we uh, overcome alienation or confront it, or how do we reach out? What are the things we should value or lead mm-hmm. with? There's so many different prescriptions of that. And one thing you didn't talk about in the talk, I'd be interested to ask you about is a kind of like a big traditionalist movement in the church, certainly even among like, especially maybe among millennials, kind of the JP two generation, really interested in apologetics, um, maybe are involved with the, the Latin mass or, um, things that are great parts of the tradition, but like maybe would say that, you know, like we need, we can't like water it down, right? Like we can't like, we have to be kind of strong and prophetic about like kind of what we believe and how it's different. It's countercultural. And like, if you want to be a part of it, then like, yeah, you know, that includes all of these things and will be a challenge and we might end up with a smaller church. Um, but like, we, we don't want to water it down then you then you lose who you are so like so there is certainly like that is a again i say big <laughs> compared to some of these other groups is a much smaller group but that is certainly a, a sizable group and i wonder like should you know doubling down on some of those commitments in the, the traditionalist movement will that could that help us grow in a different way or does that end up just alienating and making us smaller and purer and therefore not the kind of classic universal catholic here comes everybody yeah um, well, I can, I'll say that in this, in this instance, I think I can probably speak on behalf of Commonweal in addition to myself, but Commonweal has, you know, written extensively about this and I would recommend the variety of opinions because this phenomenon has been growing and has been getting attention for some time. But I, I, like I said before, I don't think it's as massive as it's perceived or as it's amplified. I think it's one of these things that 
is so clickable. It just keeps getting more attention. But, um, you know, no way do I want a smaller, purer church. Um, I, I don't think that it even works to say a smaller church is the purer one because um, we there's no way of knowing, of judging the hearts of the people who remain and what is pure about their heart or their faith is... It's a silly thing to presume that, you know, fidelity to a kind of ritual or piety is itself an indication of like a pure faith. It's, of course, an outward performance that could trick anyone like the Pharisees, which is not to accuse this group of, you know, being Pharisees, but to say like, there's no way of determining what a pure church would look like. Um, But on top of that, a pure church, to my mind, is rife with disagreement. Like it is, that is what Catholicism, you know, functionally promises us is that it is capacious enough to, you know, house a a spirituality, a distinct spirituality for every single believer, that there's room for everyone here. Um, And that we can be one in our diversity, you know, that it's a unity, not a uniformity. Um, So I, I'm not even sure I could get behind an expression called a smaller, purer church because a smaller church is not purer to me. It's smaller because there's more homogeny. And um, I don't think homogeny is a hallmark of the church. Mm. So I, so then what for you, like in a place now in Commonweal, which in some ways would be facing some of the challenges of the church at large, right? So mm-hmm. kind of confronted with this and um, both polarization in the church, the alienation of so many outside the church, and also being a kind of also that working in, in media, right? Which is a whole nother institution too that people do not trust and yep. is facing all kinds of challenges. Um, so kind of given this and some of these questions, so what is then the, what is your approach? Like, what are you doing as a team to think, okay, like how do we kind of stay true to who we are, but mm-hmm. also reach new people and grow and change? Uh, which again yeah. are questions you asked to, could ask to the Pope too. Yeah, yeah. It's funny to be, I'm sure you can relate to this too. It's funny to be, not an institutional organization, but to be adjacent to the church itself. Like we are this parachurch institution. We're not, we're not, we're, we're entirely lay led. We're 99 years old this year. We'll turn a hundred next year. And, um, you know, we've, we've been edited by lay Catholics from day one since 1924. We, the, so I think Kamala has like the best answer in the world to this question, which is like, Young people today want to explore religious and spiritual questions without the baggage of institutional affiliation being the only reason they get to come into the door and ask the questions. So we have already created this space. Like sociologists will call it a third space. Commonweal, my colleagues at Commonweal would roll their eyes at me calling Commonweal a third space because we're not that exactly. But but we, what we have already been doing for 99 years is trying to take the questions that may be too taboo to ask in a kind of specifically institutional setting or parse the details that you will not hear parsed political, cultural, or otherwise in a homily on a Sunday morning and actually try to help Catholics think through these existential, spiritual, and religious questions that they are wrestling with in their daily life. And to think through it with reference to the tradition, but without a kind of um, chokehold, like an incapacity to ask questions, which is reminds me of, you know, the role that theology plays in the church. It, it There is um, 
official teachings and then there's theology and they have a very dynamic relationship to each other because one is trying to constrict and one is trying to expand, but we actually need both to get at the truth. Um, and so I think Commonweal plays this kind of role. And I, <laughs> what my, me and my colleagues are doing these days is trying to figure out, um, on the one hand, how to make sure that that's obvious about us so that young people, millennials and Gen Z and the upcoming alphas see us as a place that they can turn um, for these kinds of questions and curiosities where doubt is welcome, <laughs> suspicion is welcome, um, you know, nuance and long form, you know, nothing where we're like diametrically opposed to hot takes. So you will never see them like to actually do the deep, depth work of um, of trying to get at some of these questions in much the same way that it sounds like you were received by your like tattooed, pierced, long-haired youth minister. Like, like, okay, you have these questions, like, come on, I'll make space for you. Or like, yes, we've written about that. We totally think that's a valid question and we want to like engage you um, in it and have you feel engaged. Now, the interesting thing I think about this generation is that they're you know, maybe with the internet, I like I I couldn't point to it, and I'm not well versed enough in some of these like realities. But there is a kind of democratic, an insistence on democratic participation and access to information. And so, one of the things I think Commonweal is thinking about more and more is how to increase participation so that readers and people who attend our live and virtual events, people who listen to our podcast, they don't feel that they're the passive recipients of information, but they're the participants in the work of learning and question asking. And so how we take our work and translate um, some of what we do into something that is also able to be engaged and responded to is one of the questions we're asking. Um, you know, and we don't just mean like a comment section on the blog. We mean like real engagement. Um, so that these are kind of theoretical ways we're thinking about this generation and what their needs are and how they're approaching questions of religion and spiritual life. Um, but I think we have the frameworks, you know, the scaffolding in place to do it really well. And that makes me very excited about our second century. I'm curious as you're having those conversations and thinking, and then also watching stuff like the synod on synodality, which is like this huge consultation process and kind of issues are coming up in official church documents that we maybe would be surprised to see brought up there. Like, so what are you seeing other, um, efforts moving in a, in that sort of direction? Are there things that are, are giving you hope that, Hey, this is something we can be part of this. And uh, there's a, this movement happening that we can maybe do things a little bit a little bit differently. I'm curious as your your kind of take on, on what we're seeing, maybe from the, from the synod or anything else. Yeah, the synod makes me very hopeful, um, and you know I'm hopeful that the synod not only sort of sticks, but also manages to infuse um, and renew the life of the church and our capacity for for dialogue and conversation. Um, I uh, will point out that Commonweal actually just brought on four young scholars, their synod writing fellows. Um, and so they're, they're specifically looking at the synod and um, its lived experience, how it's manifesting in the United States and, you know, covering it as a topic moving forward. I sometimes think uh, in, in much the same way Commonweal sort of anticipated the Second Vatican Council 
um, in terms of lay leadership and participation and even liturgical renewal, which we were writing about in, you know, the 50s and early 60s. Um, in some ways, I feel like Commonweal has a natural uh, sort of understanding or grasp of synodality because we've been trying to do this listening from the bottom and and creating platforms for to reflect the kind of needs and and concerns of the laity especially as you know in 1924 we were trying to figure out what it meant to be both american and catholic and that was not coming from rome there was no way for the pope to comment on that experience of the lived realities that american catholics were facing at the time and so our i see our role you know, we don't think of ourselves as a churchy organization, but I see our role as being very synodal just by default because we're trying to pay attention to and and platform the voices and concerns of lived Catholics in the United States. Um, so, yeah, we're very, I don't know, very hopeful about the Synod. Um, and and I, I wonder about it, but it, you asked sort of broadly, do I have reason for hope both about the Synod? Yes. But also I have a kind of maybe vague, positive hope about what is going on with this generation. It doesn't strike me as a problem. It strikes me as an opportunity for renewal. Um, the, the skepticism, the disaffiliation, the, um, the butting of heads over things that matter very much are all part of a tension from which emerges real fruit. You know, there's there's a time of labor and then there's a time of fruit. And I think there, I have no anxieties about what's to come. And I don't think that's just like kind of starry-eyed optimism. I think like these are, these are all good things we need to have come up for us to do the next thing. Well, Ellen Koenig, I think that's a perfect place to stop. And I thank you so much for for your reflections and insight and the way you so well kind of combine this data and uh, imaginative thinking, creative thinking around these things. And just really, again, enjoyed this conversation uh, and your talk. And we'll be excited to see uh, what Commonweal does. And and uh, maybe we can collaborate on some stuff. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I think that'd be really cool. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>